is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And we love telling stories about entrepreneurs, small business people trying to live their American dream, grow their businesses bigger, and have their families prosper and their communities. And our own Alex Cortez went to a fascinating event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to pitch their American-made products, all in hope of getting into the retailers over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion of American-made products in a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of a praline proprietor he met there named Suzanne Hart. I'm Suzanne. This is my mom, Kay, and so it's named Katie Sweet. We're all scared of her, I'm just going to say that. She's an accountant by trade. The numbers match. It's We're all responsible. So, just as an example, how expensive was their hotel bill last night? It was way high. We're going to hear about that. Yeah, because, um, yeah, we should have brought the car and stayed in the car. <laughs> dinner, we had crackers. We started with her grandmother's recipe. She and my dad started a company in 72, basically because my grandparents were ill and they stayed home to take care of them. My dad was a gourmet food salesman. He had to work out of the garage at that point so they could be there for them. We all lived with them, and then uh, they just, we ship about 300,000 pounds of candy a year. We have 60 employees now, so we have 30 for this company, we have 30 for another company, and some people have been there 30 years. So we're the second generation coming into it. It's, it's really hard to have your own company. I mean, it's very hard. You work a ton of hours. There's no guarantee. Everybody gets paid before you do. And, you know, uh, you have to plan for everything and stuff happens. But you're responsible. You get your finances in order and you mind your finances and that detects everything you do. You can't go too forward because you've got a lot of people that you're responsible for. Including her four kids, the third generation who grew up in the business. And my little boy messes with their business calendars where he goes and writes his name across all of them. Yeah, that's not a good thing. They get to live well in text and, um, you know, they tell us how we could do it better. Um, they tell me how to do Instagram because I put their pictures on there and I had to take them all off because I could be business oriented. You know, they, they, they're so critical. And at that very moment, one of their kids texted them this. In the cool kids club, yet yeah. okay, that's my 17 year old, yeah. She's, um, cool yeah. kids club, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we're not, no, they let us know, no, yeah. Thankfully, Suzanne's fans do speak to her more sweetly. We have people all over the country that call us, and I have a little fan book that I talk to everybody with. They write to me, and I write back, and I send them little Texas tins, and you know, that we we all talk, it's very nice. They visit, they bring flowers it's kind of really i'm not kidding <laughs> your customers bring yes, your flowers? yes they do yes it's that good yeah and yeah it's a whole it's it's a it's a family business and uh we share it's like a reality show without the show okay and we're nice to each other because it's more effective to be nice to someone and respectful and get the job done than you know 
But what I really wanted to know more about was this fan book thing. People will call in and they start asking about the product and they see it somewhere and they want to buy it, but it's like an individual at home and they, they don't have a credit card and they want to write a check and I'm like, okay, let me send you a couple of samples and then they're like, they write like thank you notes with real mail and everything's very sweet and then we talk and then you know, you hear about the weather in Wisconsin, or there was a gentleman in Detroit that liked it, and then there's a man with Alzheimer's that his family bought it for all of his nurses because he requested it with the Prowlings in Texas. And then I have a lady named Sugar whose real name is Carlene, Carl and Lean, okay? And she's in California, and we're friends, we talk, and she's in a assisted living, and we ship out to her, and it's fun. I mean, they, they all come by and let us know how they're doing. They're very nice, I mean, they're very sweet, and they're, they just want to talk. People just want to be heard, seriously, they, and they like getting mail, and they want to know that you're not just a service thing going, yeah, whatever, and blow them off, you know. So it seems crazy that as the owner of a business, Suzanne is spending so much time chatting it up with fans, but Suzanne sees it as anything but crazy. Well, I need to do that for me because it keeps me real with, and plus people tell me what's going on. They tell me how my front people are answering the phone, how the product arrived, and I listen. People will tell you exactly what's going on. They'll tell you if they can't look at your website, if your website's not up to par, you know, if it's hard to shop on, they tell you and we fix it. So I, and then sometimes I call them just to ship them something and ask them what they think, and then they give me the whole rundown. They will tell you exactly what you may not want to hear, but you're hearing it from someone. I was curious, how many of these regulars does Suzanne have that she's talking with? I don't know. Probably, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Between you don't need to mumble 20. it. You could say it. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, we're all friends. We talk a lot. And, you know, and I let everybody know if they call in to put them through to me no matter what. And we talk and I stop what I'm doing. It's a lot of fun. It's I'm very blessed on that because they keep you real and then you have to know your customers. And when you lose sight of that, you really shouldn't be in the business because that's who's buying your product. Does that sound kind of cliche? It's true. It's true. It's really true. I mean, everyone's money is green and everyone's trusting you with with what, you know, that you're ensuring what you're giving them. It's, a, it's a, an honor. And before we forget, how did their pitch meeting go? Well, Walmart's buyers were interested enough to invite Katie Sweet to come back and this time to show them all their products. A great sign for this small business. And if Walmart moves forward with bringing them in the stores, Suzanne thinks it'll enable them to create 10 to 15 new jobs. Adding 10 jobs in our area is a very big deal. Yeah, and we have a 24,000 square foot warehouse that we can build into two stories to run like three crews. And we're approaching that as we go into like double shifts. Growing pains are hard. That's the hard stuff. Talking to people is fun. You know, <laughs> running two crews is <laughs> lots of logistics. And great job as always, Alex. And my goodness, open call at Walmart. Hundreds of folks like Suzanne Hart trying to get their product nationwide. And what a thing to do. Again, a commitment to $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. Suzanne Hart of Katie Sweet. You can learn more about her yummy pralines by going online to katiesweet.com. Suzanne Hart's story and open call stories from Walmart here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now we bring you the story of a musician and a heck of a guitar player. This is the story of Eddie Van Halen, his immigration to this great country, and the beginning of his musical career. Here's Jesse with the story. Eddie Van Halen is one of the most famous and talented guitar players of all time. His sound is the epitome of 1980s rock and roll. The band, named after himself, sold so many records and went through so many lead singers over the years that they basically lost track of the official worldwide album sales information somewhere along the way, upwards of 100 million worldwide. The band formed in Pasadena, California, 1972. While the sound of Van Halen is uniquely American, the story of Eddie Van Halen begins in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Born in 1955 to a Dutch father and an Indonesian mother, my father uh, was a professional musician, uh, classically trained on clarinet and saxophone, and he traveled the world making music, and he met my mother in Indonesia. So here she is stuck at home with Alex and I, and uh, uh, my father's out trying to get gigs, uh, which kept him from home uh, at weeks at a, for weeks at a time. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, with the big band era and everything coming kind of to a, to a close, he said to my mom, let's uh, pack up the kids and the piano and move to Beverly. Hills, that is. Swimming pools and movie stars. So little Eddie Van Halen, his brother Alex, mom and musician dad made their break for America, and they brought the family piano with them. We came to America uh, on, on a boat, nine days on the boat, and um, uh, he, he, he performed on the boat with the band, and uh, that was our ticket over here. And uh, one day he comes up to Alex and I and he goes, so why don't you guys play piano during the intermission? So we ended up performing also on the boat, uh, which uh, gave, showed us the, uh, the quirks of, uh, of being a performer, uh, or the, the pluses of it, because the, the next night we're at the captain's table eating dinner. <laughs> so we, we found out at an, at an early age, you know, what being on stage meant. While little Eddie was quickly learning the perks of being a musician, he would also soon learn about the struggles of being a traveling troubadour. When we finally arrived in Pasadena, California, it was rough. Uh, my father, you know, a classically trained musician, uh, had to walk three miles uh, to go wash dishes. He was a janitor at Masonic Temple and Pacific Telephone. We lived in one room, we slept in one bed in a house with two other families. So it, it was rough going. Somewhere my mom had a, a sense that we were gonna follow in my father's footsteps. And, and knowing that in the back of her head, she insisted that we start being classically trained on piano. While young Edward Van Halen and his brother Alex continued to be trained on classical piano, their mother would place them into piano competitions. You practice one piece of music all year and the funny thing is, I never learned how to read music. And uh, I fooled the teacher. I was just blessed with good ears. I'd, w I'd watch his fingers and, and emulate what he did. You know, He didn't find out until much later that I couldn't read. Uh, the, these piano contests, uh, actually, at, both Alex and I won three years in a row. I think I won first prize three years in a row. And Al won first prize, second prize, whatever. But we, we always won. And... Uh, it's kind of like in phases where you go in and you play and then you go, you wait an hour to see if your name gets whittled down. I had no idea. It was like 5,000 kids. 
Okay, then it'll go down to 2,000, and you see if your name is still on the list. And then it'll go down to 100 people, and then 10, and then 5. And we're going, Alex and I are both going, come on, let's, let's just go home. We're not going to make it, you know? And my dad, my dad was always going to say, no, 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 wait, 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 check it out. And well, there it was. We were in the top five. And then uh, we ended up winning. Eddie and his brother dominated the piano competitions roughly from ages 9 to 11. It was around this time that the Van Halen brothers discovered rock and roll. We discovered the Beatles and Dave Clark Five. And of course, like any kid, we wanted the rock and roll. I quit uh, piano lessons and the contest circuit, so to speak, and said, I want to get myself a drum kit because I like uh, a song glad all over boom, 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 uh, by Dave Clark Five. And I wanted to play drums, so I got a paper out, bought a St. George drum kit for 125 bucks. And my mom somehow had convinced my brother to still do something musically respectable, which is take Linko guitar lessons. One day, while young Eddie was returning from his paper route, he found his brother Alex pounding away on the drums that he had bought with his own money. He owed me a bit in the beginning, you know. And then finally I just said, okay, he's just better than I am. So... I never wanted to play guitar, but I said, okay, go ahead, take my drums, I'll play your damn guitar. While classically trained on the piano, young Eddie had no idea how to play the guitar. So, he taught himself. I just, uh, instead of reading a book, I wrote my own, so to speak. Um, uh, I'd say that 90% of the things that I do on guitar, if I had taken lessons and learned by the book, uh, I would not play it all the way I do. As a matter of fact, because of the things that I created uh, technique-wise and whatever the way I play, they had to reinvent a whole new way to write music. Because uh, they could not explain uh, with regular notes what I was doing with this hand. So they had to create a whole new thing called tablature. While tablature's been around since the 1300s, Eddie absolutely revolutionized the way people heard and played the guitar. And while he didn't exactly invent two-hand tapping on the guitar's fretboard, which sounds like this, he most definitely brought the technique mainstream. The Van Halen brothers formed their first band called the Broken Combs in 64. As they progressed and gained in popularity, they started to play backyard parties and changed the name to the Trojan Rubber Company. In 1972, they formed another band called Genesis. They initially rented out a sound system from David Lee Roth, but decided to save money by letting him join the band as the lead vocalist. The band later changed its name to Mammoth when they discovered that the name Genesis had already been taken by Phil Collins. In 1974, Mammoth officially changed its name to Van Halen. In mid-77, Mo Austin and Ted Templeton of Warner Brothers Records saw Van Halen perform at the Starwood. Though the audience was small, the two were so impressed that within a week, they offered the band a recording contract. Upon its release, the self-titled album Van Halen reached number 19 on the Billboard Pop Music Charts, one of rock's most commercially successful debuts. The sounds on that record were a lot of years of experimentation and tearing apart guitars and opening up amplifiers and getting electrocuted. By the time the first record came out, we had worked so hard to make that record, to get to that point. Uh, don't forget, we, uh, being a rock and roll band in 1977, 78, uh, it's kind of what it's like today, uh, except back then it was punk and disco. I hate to bring up Spinal Tap, but, you know, but uh, you know, while they're going to 11 at the, at the time, I was already going to 15. 
The album included songs now regarded as Van Halen classics like Running with the Devil and the guitar solo Eruption, which showcases Eddie's use of finger tapping. The main reason why I squeeze so many, you know, you call them tricks, call them whatever techniques out of a guitar, was out of necessity because I couldn't afford the pedals. So I did everything I could to get sounds out of, out of the guitar with my fingers. The band would go on to record several albums only to unceremoniously swap out lead singer David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar in a big bag of drama from 1985 that we're not going to rip into in this report. Aside from this clip from the movie Airheads. What side did you take in the big David Lee Roth Van Halen split? What do you mean? What kind of question is that? What side did you take, Halen or Roth? Van Halen. He's a cop. And the rest is pretty much history. With 12 albums under their belt and the eventual reunion with singer David Lee Roth, the band had a successful North American tour in 2015 and are rumored to be gearing up for another in the near future. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, Van Halen is the 19th best-selling band in United States history, selling 56 million albums in the U.S. alone. Not bad for a kid who immigrated to America fresh off the boat with the family piano in tow. Coming here with... Approximately $50 and a piano, not being able to speak the language, uh, going through everything uh, to get to where we are. Uh, if that's not an American dream, I don't know what is. I mean, really, only in America is it still possible. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's all about freedom, and you put your nose and tail to it, and uh, just don't stop. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Put your nose and tail to it and just don't stop. By the way, his story is reminiscent of Irving Berlin's. If you remember, two very different kinds of musicians. Irving Berlin did not read music. Neither did Eddie Van Halen. He was self-taught, so was Eddie Van Halen. If you remember, Irving Berlin only played the black keys because his fans and his fingers couldn't play with the white ones. And we learned that, my goodness, Eddie, he couldn't afford the pedals. So that's why he had to learn to bend those strings and get all those sounds out. What a story, what an American story. Eddie Van Halen's story here on Our American Story. And this is Our American Stories. And we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports to history and, of course, the sciences. And we read a book review in the Wall Street Journal called It Never Hurts to Ask. And it was all about a book called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And the writer joins us, Professor Mario Livio. He's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at UNLV. And he worked at the Hubble Telescope for 24 years. And thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Well, let's talk about astrophysics first. What is it, and why were you curious about that? Because that obviously led to your life's work, sir. Well, astrophysics is really about understanding the universe, and by that I mean from the universe at large, you know, 
why the universe expands, uh, what is the evolution of the universe, uh, to understanding how galaxies form, how stars form, how planets form, uh, how life emerged in the universe. All of that belongs to astrophysics. And talk about now your, your quest to dig into this space called curiosity, because I think this is what separates man from everybody else, is the degree to which we're curious and what we do about it. Um, right. So talk about that. So, indeed, humans are, are really quite unique in the fact that they ask why, uh, even about unseen causes. Um, animals are curious, too, but they don't normally ask why, and especially not about things that they cannot directly see. Um, so uh, I was always a very curious person, uh, and at one point I just became very curious about curiosity itself. So, you know, I decided to spend uh, more than four years uh, studying, you know, what research has been done in psychology and neuroscience about curiosity. Uh, I spoke with many researchers in the field, uh, visited some labs and so on, and uh, that's the result is this book. Are we naturally curious, or is it something we develop? Is there a curiosity gene, to be so blunt? Uh, (laughs) Yes. So we are naturally curious in the sense that Studies show that uh, 40 to 50% of uh, this trait of curiosity, as with many other psychological traits, are genetic. Uh, namely, if your parents were very curious, your grandparents were very curious, chances are you'll also be a very curious person. So, so some part of it is genetic. But, of course, there, there, is, there are other parts that are, um, you know, just environmental and depending on your particular circumstances. I mean, it depends on your parents and how they they taught you, your teachers, uh, maybe the church you go to, um, things of that nature, the environment in which we live. I mean, does that allow you the luxury of being curious about certain things and not about others and so on? Well, curiosity has done a lot for humankind. I mean, you posit that it's kept us alive in many respects. And if, if, if anything, it's expanded our life expectancies and so many other things. From the creation of fire, which I think is, you know, we can take it all the way back there. That was curiosity itself, wasn't it? The unseen, and the next thing you know, we're creating this thing out of nothing. That's right. So, so curiosity in, indeed drives, of course, all scientific research. Uh, it drives the process of education. It plays a role, you know, in books we write, films we see, and even simple conversations. I mean, you don't want to have a conversation with somebody unless you're somewhat curious about what they have to say. Um, And indeed, it goes back all the way to the pre-humans and the very early humans who had to be curious about, you know, what does fire do? You know, how can I use that? Uh, What do tools do? And, And things of that nature that expanded both the diet of the early humans and uh, you know, the fact that uh, they c- could start to do all kinds of other things that they couldn't before. Let's talk about the two dimensions of curiosity that you talk about in your book. And one of them has to do with, let's just say, the senses, and the other with the intellect. Um, talk about those two things. So uh, there are various types of curiosity. So one curiosity is, for example, it has been dubbed perceptual curiosity. That's the curiosity we feel when something surprises us or when something that we see doesn't quite agree with what we know or at least think we know. Um, You know, think, for example, you know, of uh, some children in some remote village 
in, in South America seeing a white person for the very first time. Things of that type, things that really surprise you. Then there is epistemic curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is the real love of knowledge. It's what drives us to learn things. It's that pleasure, you know, or anticipation of pleasure that coming from new knowledge. And that's uniquely, as, you, as we had said before, that is just uniquely human. That's uh, right. That's a, that's a characteristic that is uniquely human. Now let's talk about some people. Um, let's talk about some curious people, and two that you feature. Well, let's talk about one first, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. So Leonardo has been uh, called uh, by... Uh, uh, Kenneth Clark, the art critic, the most relentlessly curious mind in history. And indeed, you know, here is a person, you know, of course we know him from his works of art, the Mona Lisa and all that, but he was really curious about everything. I mean, he has, you know, he has left us with some 7,000 pages of notes, and probably there were maybe double that when he lived. And in, in those, he studies everything from the flow of water to the flight of birds to how do you paint to uh, how long is uh, the tongue of the woodpecker. I mean, he was literally interested in everything around him, except perhaps politics, which was a very good thing because he lived at the time of the Borgias and they basically killed anybody who got involved in politics. Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, we had just spent some time with David McCullough not long ago. And the curiosity of the Wright brothers was remarkable. I mean, these two guys just kept going at it. And they were curious, and they tested, and they were curious. And in their own way, they were hobbyists. But they were doing things that, well, Leonardo was thinking about and puzzled over himself. That curiosity drove them, too. Right. You're absolutely right. Of course, you, you know, I mean, not all were his ideas. I mean, a, a little bit fewer than the things we think were, you know, there were things that were in the air at the time. But the fact that he was interested in all of those is what makes him so absolutely unique. Indeed, indeed. And, and very few people have that kind of mind and that level and breadth and depth of curiosity. Let's talk about that other person you talk about in the book, Richard Feynman. And by the way, who is he for folks who may not have ever heard his name? Yeah, so Richard Feynman was uh, one of the most uh, celebrated physicists uh, of the 20th century. He worked in almost every area of physics and also a Nobel laureate in physics. Um, but in addition to everything he did in physics, he was interested in so many other things. He was a bongo drummer. Uh, he studied how to draw. Uh, he was an expert in uh, cracking safes. Uh, he uh, was uh, an expert in Mayan hieroglyphs and things like this. So he was, again, a sort of a Leonardo-type person, although more, you know, in the sciences uh, than uh, in the arts, uh, but, but really a person that found everything interesting. He basically said, everything is interesting if you look into it deeply enough. And you coined a phrase, curiosity is the best remedy for fear. Talk about that. Yes. You see, very often things we're fearful about or afraid of are things that we just don't know much about or we don't understand. And by actually learning more about them and under, trying to understand them better, we actually can get rid of that fear. And, and that's why I, I truly strongly believe in this statement that curiosity is the best remedy for fear. And indeed, uh, you, you sort of intimate that curiosity is better than bravery for overcoming fear. Yes. 
curiosity uh, very often will drive people to do uh, more risky things than, you know, uh, you just associate with brave people. Right. I think brave people intimates risk and risk-taking and uh, curiosity. Well, you just got to follow it down. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation, the book, Why, What Makes Us Curious, and we're curious about this book. We continue our conversation with Professor Mario Olivio after these commercial messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we return with Professor Mario Livio, an adjunct professor at UNLV. He worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years, and he's an astrophysicist. And we continue our conversation on his new book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? We read a terrific Wall Street Journal review, and we just had to dig in and get the book. Let's dig into some of the deeper things about this book and some of the depth here. Isn't the beginning of learning admitting you don't know something? Oh, yes. Uh, that actually, you know, marked the, the change from the Middle Ages into, you know, Renaissance and eventually into what we call the Enlightenment. I mean, what happened in the Middle Ages is that various entities uh, and regimes basically tried to convince the people that they know everything or they know everything that needs to be known. And it is really that change where in the Enlightenment, when suddenly people said, wait a second, actually, we almost don't know anything, everything we have to learn. That is really what caused, you know, all this enormous change and then the beginning of modern science, modern arts and all that. And talk about the Enlightenment, if you can, because there were many challenges to many institutions because of the Enlightenment. And in the end, curiosity can be dangerous to regimes. You're right. Uh, you see, various oppressive regimes uh, find it, I think, more convenient for people to be less curious and ask fewer questions. And, you know, you might think that this is something that, oh, well, maybe, you know, in the Middle Ages and things like this. Uh, but you see this today. I mean, you, you know, you have regimes, you know, such as the Taliban, uh, who, you know, they destroyed these Buddhas of Bamiyan, this enormous, you know, 100 feet statues that existed, you know, since the 6th century. Or, you know, they shot in the head that young Pakistani girl, you know, Malala Yousafzai, uh, because she advocated education for young girls. Uh, so you see, even today, you know, these attempts to suppress curiosity. And, and the, the move to enlightenment is really when you realize that you should let uh, your curiosity be free. Well, and I think that that gets to the larger point. Curiosity is power. 
in the end. And, and power generally feels threatened by curiosity. You're right. I mean, at least there are such, such powers that feel threatened by curiosity because it's sometimes easier to, um, you, you know, especially when, when for, for oppressive regimes, you know, it's easier to control people when they don't, don't know things rather than, you know, going the other way and for the regime to become more enlightened. Indeed. And I think the second you start to ask even why of a government, and that becomes a dangerous question, even that kind of curiosity uh, wants to be suppressed by certain types of dictatorships, and we've learned this throughout history. What happens when you when you deny people their curiosity? In the end, the regimes suffer. It's not even in their interest, is it, to suppress the curiosity of your own people? In the long term, of course, it isn't. I mean, because those those kind of societies, they <laughs> at the end, you know, they lag behind in terms of uh, development, in terms of, uh, you know, science, in terms of uh, developing uh, the humanities, the arts, and all that. I mean, it's remarkable what's happened because of curiosity. Uh, Let's talk about some of the technology today. Do you think in the end that the Facebook, the Googles, uh, artificial intelligence are going to benefit curiosity, hinder, or is it a mixed bag? Well, I think it is somewhat a mixed bag, but I think that overall it's a good thing, and I'll, I'll tell you why. One type of curiosity, which is called specific curiosity, which is, you know, when you need to know a very particular thing, like uh, what was the name of the actor in that movie or something like that, uh, that actually, you know, um, the availability of information at our fingertips literally, you know, can satisfy that very quickly. I mean, you know, once you maybe had to struggle for hours to try to remember that name, now you can Google it right away and find it. So that type of curiosity indeed is kind of hindered a little bit in some sense by, by the availability of these tools. But at the other, on the other hand, the important things really are helped by all the, the availability of these, uh, you know, digital tools. Because remember... You know, for example, questions that science asks, new questions that you want to research. I mean, those are questions to which you don't know the answers. So you are not going to find the answers on the Internet. So all all you are going to find on the Internet is to find information that maybe will help you to investigate this further. So in that respect, I find, for example, that the Internet really enhances my curiosity because I can satisfy the simple things relatively fast, But then, you know, that allows me to find more information to dig deeper. It also allows people on platforms to connect and question each other and talk to each other in ways never before imagined, Professor. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean, at the time of Leonardo and so on, I mean, everything, you know, was communicated by by, by writing letters. And even those letters, uh, you know, were, were done on paper, which was not cheap. Uh, and so on, and it took forever, you know, to get to where it needed to be. So you're right. I mean, the communication is so much faster, so uh, the passage of information is so much faster. Uh, the storage of information is, of course, completely different and all that. So uh, that, that, at the end, those are the types of things that help curiosity. How do we cultivate, for the folks listening, we have uh, over a million people listening to our show now, uh, and I'm sure they're, they're wondering, I have kids even for myself, how do I cultivate this thing called curiosity? Can I cultivate it? Yes, it can be cultivated. And, you know, I, I would not claim to be an expert on this, but let me suggest a few things. 
Uh, one thing is, of course, to ask many questions. And, of course, the other thing is that they ask many questions. The kids tend to ask many questions. Try not to answer the questions immediately, but try to answer them in the following way. You know, they ask you, why that and that and that? So you try to answer, well, why do you think it's that? And then the kid would say something, and then he would say, okay, so let's test that. If that is the correct answer, then it also means that that and that, and so on. And that's how you, you know, drive epistemic curiosity. Another thing that is very, very important, in my opinion, is that you should always start with something the child is already curious about. For, for example, you know, most young children are interested in dinosaurs. So start science lessons with dinosaurs because they're already curious about those. And from that, you can then lead to other things, you know, you think they should know. You know, for example, you want to teach them about free fall acceleration on Earth, okay? They may be bored by that. But they, you talk to them about dinosaurs, and then you say, well, dinosaurs actually became extinct. And you know why? Because an asteroid hit Earth and, you know, killed all the dinosaurs. Uh, you know why the asteroid hit Earth? Because it had accelerated towards the Earth because of the Earth's gravity. So you started with something they were curious about, and you led them to something that you wanted them to know. You know, and it's interesting because you're digging into something I think about a lot, and that is where the science... The sciences and story combine and converge. Because in large measure, what you're doing is telling the kids a scientific story. And it's through questions and answers and this process that you're driving their curiosity. But my goodness, look at how the story plays a part. And the idea of story plays a part. What, how important is story to curiosity? Story is extremely important. I mean, you, you would, you know, people like stories. People love storytelling. Uh, I actually start, I started the book with a very short story by, by this American author, Kate Chopin, which is called The Story of an Hour. Uh, and, and the reason I started it with that is because I was so impressed with her ability to create curiosity with almost every sentence. You know, almost every sentence Head ends with some sort of an intellectual cliffhanger, and you want to read the next sentence. And that's a powerful thing, and we should keep that all in mind. One thing that surprised you as we leave this interview, what's the one thing that surprised you in your research, Professor? Uh, there were a number of things that surprised me. I mean, for example, that difference between perceptual and epistemic curiosity, the curiosity we feel when we're surprised and curiosity we feel when, you know, we really love to learn, uh, I didn't realize that those, you know, actually activated different parts of our brain and were associated in one case with an unpleasant state, in the other with a pleasant state. That surprised me. Another thing that it's, um, amazed me, actually, was that, you know, I thought that curiosity is such an important topic that, you know, lots of neuroscientists and psychologists would be working on that. And I was surprised to actually see how, you know, a relatively small number of people are working on that. Of course, you know, consciousness is such a big thing, and curiosity is just a part of it, and so neuroscientists are working on many other things. But I was still surprised that relatively not more people are, are working on curiosity specifically. Well, we're happy you did. The book is Why, What Makes Us Curious. The author, Professor Mario Livio, and he's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. And he also worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. And one of our favorite topics here on Our American Stories is the story of a song. And today, we're going to tell you the story of how we've listened to our favorite songs and how these songs have shaped and defined our lives. Here's Greg Hengler. In 1877, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, the first record player. Almost two decades later, in 1896, radio was invented. We've come a long way from the phonograph to today's MP3. How we got here is the story we are about to tell. Let's begin with the godfather of hip-hop culture, Africa Mbamba, music writer Chuck Granada, recording engineer Rudy Van Gelder, and Elton John. Way back before my time, they had the turntable that you used to have to crank up. Then it has this big fat needle with a little pin on it. And they used to get on the record and you might hear the crack of pops popping in it. And they used to hear the song coming through a horn. You might not have no bass, but you had a lot of treble, but you still was learning to dance with it. Those old 78 RPM records, the grooves were cut into shellac and were very noisy. Those 78s, the playing time was three minutes each side. The 78 was, you know, big and, and it broke. Here's Chuck Granada and Steven Van Zandt. In the 1940s, two major rivals had been experimenting with a way to create a quieter record with a longer playing time. There was Columbia, headed by William Paley, and RCA Victor, which was headed by David Sarnoff. Sarnoff had RCA, and they had everything, okay? They had radio, they invented the record player, they invented the record, the record being the 10-inch shellac 78. So, in 1948, Sarnoff going along merrily, owning the world. And this upstart, Paley, 10 years younger, invites him to the CBS office and says, listen, David, we want you to hear our new product. And he plays him the first 33 album. A new kind of record, LP, is played for 25 instead of four minutes without interruption. As though it were a top-secret mission, Paley had his engineers create a long-playing vinyl record before RCA had the chance to come out with their version. So that really aggravated Sarnoff. So Sarnoff leaves there and calls his entire office into the room and says, you know, you have exactly five minutes to explain to me how this punk beat me to the punch with something new. And they go through all their files looking for some way to combat this. And they go all the way back to their very first record. It happened to be a seven-inch disc. And they create this this seven-inch 45. On the new distortion-free RCA Victor 45 RPM records. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you apple, plum, and apricot, do Come on to my house. What are teenagers listening to on the radio? They're listening to one song, two songs, that are the most popular. So let's come out with a disc that has two songs on it, 
and we'll sell it for 50 cents. And along with the kids' records, the kids' record player, which he takes into his room by himself to play his records. And a whole new thing is born called Teenage Rock and Roll. Here's Paul Inca, Jeff Beck, and Roger Daltrey. Music was everywhere, and it was always this social event based around that funny little machine. The elevator's broken down, so I want To hear Eddie Cochran, 20 Flight Rock, that was it. And this thing used to whir around and almost rat- rattle itself off the table because it's spinning so fast. The rock single was the thing that really made us all want to be rock singers or guitarists or in a band. And it was the noise of it. Here's George Martin. What amazed me was the sheer technical ferocity of the stuff. Volume. I could actually see the loudness of the record in the groove. The louder you could make a pop record, the better it was likely to sell. Rock and roll was considered bad for the youth of America by a lot of people, mostly adults. Here's record producer Lamont Dozer. Music was segregated during the 50s. People used to call it black music, brace music. And a lot of the people used to think that it was a little too suggestive. When you throw me like you throw me with a touch that always fills me with love, so fine. In the morning. 45 records, I think, did a lot for bringing the races together. I think it was the beginning of the end for that old race music. Here's songwriting team Mike Stoller and Jerry Lieber. Jerry and I were young white kids, even though we liked to think of ourselves as black, who loved black music. And those were the artists that we wanted to write for. I first met Big Mama Thornton in Johnny Otis's rehearsal space. She was quite intimidating. She had a few scars on her face, looked like razor scars, but she could sing. A&R man, Johnny Otis, called and said, I'm doing a session with her, and I need songs, so you better come on down. She was wearing old farmer jeans. She looked like she didn't have much use for guys like us. Her actual physical being inspired Jerry. I think it probably took us about 10 minutes to write Hound Dog. I said, you know what, man, I'm not happy with this song. I said, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. It's not, it's not enough kick. I want something really dirty, like Dirty Mother Furrier, don't you know? And I said, no, they won't play that on the radio. I really want something that's really kick. Hound dog, I mean, give me a break. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the story of sound, the story of records, here on Our American Stories. Come here, baby. 
This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to Big Mama Thornton's Everything Gonna Be All Right. And now let's return to Greg Hengler and the 60 years of songwriting team Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller as they continue to tell the story of how they wrote a song called Hound Dog for Big Mama in 1952. This prolific songwriting team wrote some of the most enduring classics in the history of rock and roll. Yakety Yak, Stand By Me, There Goes My Baby, and On Broadway. Here's Stoller and Lieber. We attempted to interest her in the song. She snatched the paper out of my hand. She said, what's this? I said, that's the song. He said, this is the song? I said, yeah. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. I remember Jerry saying, it it doesn't go like that, Big Mama. She said, white boy, don't tell me how to sing the blues. Here's Elton John. My mum came home with a record. She said, I've just heard this record, and it's the sort of music I've never heard before, she said, but it's fantastic. And she said, listen to it. You ain't nothing but a It was a total introduction to a different sort of music, obviously, which I found out later to have its roots in blues and rockabilly and folk and country uh, and gospel. Um, but, you know, Elvis Presley you know, was the one. Here's record producer Lamont Dozer. Thanks to Elvis, we were able to combine a mixture of what they thought white felt and what blacks felt. Elvis brought a style of his own, uh, wiggling his behind and what have you, and singing this same song by Big Mama Thornton, and all of a sudden it became acceptable. When I heard Elvis's rendition of Hound Dog, I thought it was kind of rockabilly, didn't have any blood in it. But after it sold seven million records, it started to uh, sound better. Here's Chuck Granada. Big Mama Thornton's recording of Hound Dog in 1953 did very well. It was a 78 RPM that sold between half a million and a million copies. When Elvis's came out on a 45 RPM record in 1956, it sold 10 million copies. And that was a turning point for the 45. Meanwhile, other artists are beginning to make inroads with the 33 and a third LP. In the wee small hours of the morning, while the whole wide world is fast asleep, 
by 1954, Frank Sinatra is at the top of his game. It's a sweet spot for his voice and his work. At the same time, he's got this deep emotional upheaval because he's really carrying a torch for Ava Gardner, to whom he's still married, but not with. He's already broken up with her. And when he walked into the Capitol studio to record in the wee small hours, he understood that he could use this new format, the LP, for long form expression. You ain't been music writer Jody Rosen. Before the long playing record, we had a three minute long song. Now we could have a long form musical story. And so Sinatra created this crazy thing called the concept record. Frank sat with little pieces of paper with each song title on it, and he would shuffle them around so that they told the story. 16 songs, single statement. What it's like to lose your love. Frank always wanted Ava back. And what we hear in In the Wee Small Hours is a reflection of that anguish that he had lost this great love of his life. Always get that mood indigo Since my baby said goodbye In the evening, when the lights are low, I'm so lonely I could cry. This landmark album coincided with true high fidelity sound, the LP magnetic tape, and these gorgeous Neumann microphones that gave you the most incredible richness. In creating this concept album, Sinatra solidified a format for all of music to follow. Here's Paul Anka. Well, in the 50s, in the early 60s, the single record was the thing. If you didn't have that, you didn't get the album, which was a follow-through, and then you didn't have a career. Here's Tommy from Tommy James and the Shondells. And radio was the way you put new records in front of the public. So I loved AM radio. Be happy. Come on, everybody. It's a beautiful night in Chicago. These 50,000-watt clear channel stations, I mean, WLS in Chicago would hit 10 to 20 million people. Hi, everybody. All over America, this is your cousin Brucey. It's the WABC party. Go, go. They'd hit 38 states at night. There is nothing more exciting thing on this earth than an exploding smash hit single because it just it happens everywhere at once and it just goes. It's like an atomic bomb. So you knew going in the studio that everything you had to say had to be no longer than two minutes and 30 seconds, or shorter, if you wanted to get on the radio. Here's the band's Robbie Robertson. 
This was like 1965. We were zooming around uh, Manhattan. And John Hammond Jr. said, listen, a friend of mine is recording. And I said I would stop in and say hello and hear a little bit of what he's doing. So we went to Columbia Recording Studios. And Bob Dylan and these musicians were in there recording. And they were recording like a Rolling Stone. Once upon a time, you so fine. the of time in your prime. And I didn't know, but I thought, this song is really interesting. It was like a different kind of songwriting. Dion, Dion and the Belmonts was there. Here's Dion. It was great to watch. Dylan had recorded some albums with just his guitar. And now he had a few of the guys uh, from the Brill Building come up and play with, you know, drums, a full band behind him. It was exciting. But he was like, like somebody let him out of a cage or something. <laughs> he knew what he was about and exactly what he wanted to do. You couldn't sway him because I heard some musicians say listen you can't do he said follow me here's record producer Don Wise like a Rolling Stone in my opinion is the greatest single anyone's ever made it's a really ambitious statement to put in a rock and roll 45 just a couple years past like be my baby And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, in essence, of American music. By the way, the innovation on the technical side, prompting innovation on the musical side, and an explosion occurs, a convergence of every form of music in America. More of this remarkable story of the American musical story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with this remarkable story about American music, basically, and how the 33, the 45, and the 78 were competing and created very different formats. And now let's continue with Greg Hengler and more of this story. Records, cassettes, CDs, and MP3s. These are not just vehicles for music. 
They are reflections of ourselves in the time we live in. As technology has evolved, each generation has had a format to call its own. This is the story of our on-again, off-again love affair with musical formats and how magical pieces of wax, plastic, and silicone changed our world. Let's return to our story and pick up where we left off with Bob Dylan's masterpiece, Like a Rolling Stone. Columbia had really become an album company. Bob makes what is perhaps the longest single ever made, uh, six minutes long. Like a Rolling Stone, all of a sudden, it becomes a hit single. Now Bobby Dylan comes front and center at WHK with song number six on the survey. This is called Like a Rolling Stone. You're going to hear the whole six-minute version here. I think that the impact on radio was huge. You know, that maybe we can offer more. Uh, this is KSAN in San Francisco. Here's Stephen Van Zandt. Around 69, FM radio started, which meant... You know, the DJs were slowed down now. And that's the way it was, and that's the way it is. And it's always changing, and it is always the same. And they were talking more conversationally, and it was all sort of being taken much more seriously. Here's Tommy James. We went out uh, with Hubert Humphrey in 1968 on the presidential campaign. He was, of course, running for president. He was the vice president. Well, when we went out on the campaign, uh, the big acts of the day were the Rascals, the Association, the Buckinghams, Gary Puckett, us, you know, uh, all singles acts. 90 days later, when we get back, no kidding, the hottest acts are Led Zeppelin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all album acts. We knew that if we were going to stay in this business, we had to sell albums. Led Zeppelin, I believe, was the first one to tell the record company they were not permitted to put out a hit single anymore because they were just so uncool. Here's Dion. All of a sudden, the 50s, people are on album covers, they're all smiling. The 60s hit, you don't smile on album covers anymore. Kennedy was assassinated. Rock and roll went down about five octaves. It got serious. Here's music writer Greg Milner. During the 70s, especially in the rock world, the LP was king. But it had drawbacks. They can scratch. They're certainly not portable. And there was no way to make one easily. You had to go into a recording studio. You couldn't just make uh, an LP at home. pocket size and instant loading the cassette tape was a good example of a technology that really didn't even pretend to be in advance over what came before in terms of sound quality it was however very very portable you record from your radio or make your own programs and the first time anybody could make a recording it's very easy to make like a direct you know from vinyl to tape recording here's music producer nigel godrich adam horowitz and Dave Grohl. I just taped all my friends. You know, I just had thousands of cassettes. 
you know, I was pirating as a child, you know, absolutely. Think about when you were a kid and you're going to school and your pockets are like this and it's like all tapes. We would make cassettes and share them with friends. And we would pass them around and then we'd go see those bands when they came into town. And we felt like that music was ours. Of course, you could also make mixtapes, so essentially you could create your own LPs. You had your cassette for a dollar and you'd put all your favorite songs on it. You could find connections between songs. You could find thematic things. If I was making a tape for you, I'd be like, you know what? I have a feeling you're going to like these particular types of songs. You'd maybe put some romantic things on there. You'd try to be cool with it. This is how I feel, you know, about you. In this particular selection of songs in this particular order, it was a big deal. It's the extent of your arm. It's the extent of your personality. If there's a girl that you're really into, first thing I do is I go make her a mixtape. It was a document for who you were at that moment, who you, how you wanted the rest of the world to see you through the prism of the music that you loved. Here's Nina Cherry. From the south to the west to the east to the I remember getting a mixtape from Corona Queens. It was Spoonie G. It was just like a cassette from like a bodega. And I think I probably killed it. You know, I played it to death. It was like the first real uncommercial hip hop, sounding like it was coming off the street. And I fell in love with it. Here's Dave Grohl. The first music scene that I fell in love with was the punk rock scene. My cousin Tracy, she brought me upstairs and she showed me a record collection and she had fanzines. And you go to the back of one of those fanzines and there'd be this classified ad section where, hey, I have a band, here's my demo tape, it's only 250. Send two stamps and I'll send you a sticker and my cassette. And I realized there was this whole underground network, like, whoa, man, all of this is happening without anybody having any idea it's going on. The cassette industry is booming. For the first time ever, pre-recorded cassettes are beginning to rival sales of the vinyl disc. The thing that really drove cassette sales was the advent of a handheld cassette player that you could listen to with headphones. You ready to the music with the Sony Walkman? The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. Here's recording engineer Bob Ludwig and music writer Jason King. They came up with a really good set of headphones for these little Walkmans, and for the first time, you could take a device this big with a, with a, a good set of headphones and climb the top of Mount Everest, and you could listen to a Mahler symphony and get chills down your spine. The Sony Walkman has forever changed the way the world listens to music. That was an exciting new technology because basically it inaugurated the era of private listening. It was about walking in the street with your headphones on and the music being contained to your personal space. The idea that being able to have your own soundtrack wherever you went, that's what really, I think, changed the game. You could actually take them with you on the bus. You had the sound right there in your head. By 1983, the labels had records and they had cassettes. 
they didn't see anything really new on the horizon. And when we come back, we continue with the story of the American music business, the innovations, the cultural ones, the musical ones, and of course, the technical ones. We continue this story here on Our American Stories. continue with this final segment of this remarkable music story, let's return to Greg Hengler and the conclusion. By 1983, there were records and cassettes. No one saw a new format on the horizon. Here's music reporter Steve Knopper, music executive Phil Quarter-Aro, and recording engineer Elliot Shiner. It's a disc, a digital audio disc, a gizmo so revolutionary that backers hope it will make records and tapes obsolete. The CD sounded really, really good, but the record industry has always been deeply suspicious of new technology. Industry executives said, you know, no effing way, basically. We will never get the compact disc. And the reason was because they were so worried about piracy. When you copied a CD to a cassette tape, that was a pristine copy. But the CD was cool at the time. It sounds so quaint now, but it was, it was shiny, and if you tilted it a certain way, it looked like a rainbow. It didn't scratch, and you could play it potentially in your car. And so the consumers really liked this thing. And towards the end of the 80s, people started to rebuy their music they already owned on vinyl. They started to repurchase the same collection on CD. 18, 19, 20 dollars for a CD that was really worth no more, or maybe even less, than the LP. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine and Don Was. You got a record deal, you got one song, you put 17 other songs on because they fit, and you, the people bought albums for $18 that had one song on it. When we look at the decline in the popularity of the album and of sales, I think that was just way worse than some college students downloading songs for free. You know, it's like making records. <laughs> Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley, DJ Greg Gillis, and Warner Brothers CEO Cameron Strang. With the click of a mouse, Napster allows fans to download virtually any song completely free. In 1999, some college students created a file sharing program called Napster. All of a sudden, people are like, wait a minute, I don't have to drive to a record store, pay $20 to buy a CD that just has two songs on it that I like. I can sit at home and download countless albums for nothing. And it just was like, you just discovered this golden mine, you know? It just, all of a sudden, all of the music you want, it's right there in front of you, and it's very easy to download. When they put music up for file sharing, 40-some-odd million people came. 
And, you know, there were other companies like giving away money on the internet and you couldn't get 40 million people to come. So the power of music was the first thing that struck me. I was like, wow. The court struck down Napster after two years. But by then, there were all these services all over the internet and they all used the same new format, the MP3. Here's Suzanne Vega. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. I was taking my daughter to school, and one of the parents that I didn't know turned to me and said, Congratulations on being the mother of the MP3. To the woman who has come in, she is shaking her umbrella. So I went home and, and looked it up, and sure enough, it had this story about how this engineer called Karl Heinz Brandenburg had used the original unremixed version of Tom's Diner to test this thing he was working on called the MP3. My research was how to compress music in a way that it would fit through a phone line. And I already thought I'm pretty much done. Everything works well. Someone was playing Tom's Diner down the hall. Susan Vega's voice sounds like she is standing in a room. And it's very clear and clean voice. And I said, okay, I want to try to see what our algorithms do with it. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for Unfortunately, the Susan Vega's voice was destroyed. It took us a couple of years until we really could do her voice perfectly clean. I had no idea what would come next. And I met Karl-Heinz Brandenburg, and they were talking about this great new thing that was just going to be the coolest. You could play music on your phone, on your cell phone. And I remember thinking, that's kind of, who cares? Like, I don't need to play music on my phone. I just did not see what the MP3 what the future was going to be. <laughs> I didn't see it coming. Early 2000s are really tumultuous period because a format change. Digital technologies recalibrate almost everything about how we consume music. It's always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter. You plug it into your computer and download your favorite songs. iTunes comes along and is selling songs for 99 cents. The music industry is just reeling. The best-selling digital music player in the nation, revolutionizing the way Americans of all ages listen to music. MP3s unravel what we know about people wanting albums. And so, interestingly enough, we're back to a singles-driven culture. We take it for granted now, but then it was a really remarkable concept that I could walk around with 10,000 songs in my pocket. But then, with the era of YouTube, one of the main pieces of content that people want to upload is music. They want to upload their favorite song, they want to upload this video that they made to their favorite song, and YouTube still, I believe, is the number one music streaming service in the world. Justin Bieber's songs have been listened to, some of them have been listened to 400 million times on YouTube. We listen to music on our earbuds, over our telephones, through computers. 
when I'm listening, they'll have full albums on YouTube. People just upload them. And sometimes they'll just go to the next video. Oddly enough, YouTube is kind of like a new radio. CDs are just disappearing, you know? CDs are dead. Today we have a format which is almost an invisible format. There's an amazing amount of, you know, these streaming services. My preferred method of listening to music is Spotify. SoundCloud. iHeartRadio. Sometimes Pandora. Sometimes iTunes. I'll buy songs. I don't know. I actually like that it's not physical. I feel like it saves time, energy, money. Here's Moby. Our kids, our grandkids, will literally be baffled by the idea that at one point people owned music. Here's Meryl Garbus. Whether we like it or not, people want music instantaneously at their fingertips. I do. I want to turn on my RDO or, or Spotify or whatever. I want to say, I really need to hear Dancing in the Sheets by Shalimar right now. And I can have that, you know? That is just the world that we live in. Here's MTV founder Tom Freston, record producer Eddie Kramer, and Amy Mann. The problem I have is discovering good new music. There's just an overwhelming abundance of material. Trying to figure out which technology. It became such a different experience on so many levels that I just stopped listening to music. It's only been lately that I've started again and kind of almost giving myself permission to jump back into stuff from the 70s that I never paid any attention to, like bread. Format shift in the record industry, I mean, on average, is usually 15, 20 years. Everything's up in the air now. It, it, the next five to 10 years will be super interesting. But the power of music will always be massive. It's about the song. It's about the art not the medium. Music transcends the technology, the format, whatever form you give it to me in. If the quality's good, um, if I can access what I want to hear, I'm a happy man. Here's Phil Quartararo and Roger Waters. What won't change is your relationship with music. Because sometime this year, you're going to hear a song that makes you want to cry. And we human beings have been trying to work out what it is about the mathematics of the arrangement of musical notes that elicits an emotional response in us. And it's still a mystery. Here's composer Michael Tilson Thomas, Rizza, and Daryl McDaniels. Our lives are pretty much defined by what? I don't know, 20, 30 records? How many other years passes when you want to go back to your high school memory? A song could do it for you. There's always that piano, that verse, that voice, that beat, that cut, that scratch, that guitar riff that's going to save your life. Here's Annie Lennox. I'm so grateful to all the musicians that made the music that I ever heard because it all went in and it enriched my life. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love. Here's George Martin. And we've seen now a hundred years of recorded sound. And we've seen the effect of that sound on people. 
and it has been quite remarkable. It's changed our lives. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Great job, as always, Greg, and you were listening to George Martin, perhaps the greatest innovator in the studio. He was, of course, the fifth Beatle, the producer of the Beatles. Another great Our American Stories music segment, one of my favorites. And to hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we have the story of the song up there and so much more. Hours upon hours, I would say probably over 100 now, just on songs and musical history. The story of American music, of innovation, of formats, and of course, the songwriters and singers and musicians themselves. The music no other country in the world produces like we do. This is Our American Stories. <laughs> 